Morning everyone, I'm Julie and I'm reading Psalm 95 for us today. So if you'd like to open up the text in front of you, Psalm 95, the whole psalm. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. And let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship, and let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are his people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, or as you did that day in Massa in the wilderness, whence our ancestors tested me and they tried me, though they had seen what I had, what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation, and I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. All right, everybody, thanks very much. I'll get you to grab a seat and we'll get started. Well, um, as I said before, it's lovely to be here with you again this morning. Um, I think the last time I was here was just after we'd come back from lockdown. I think I remember that because Chris and Janae's baby was just a baby and is now very long and very heavy looking. Uh, but it is wonderful to be back with you today. Uh, can I ask you please to make sure you can see in front of you the outline that uh, I provided during the week. It has both the Bible passage that you need to have open in front of you because I'm going to spend a fair bit of time looking at the actual text itself. Uh, and then on the right-hand side uh, of that outline, you'll see uh, just a, a, su- a summary of where we're going. There's a couple of extra passages there um, and also some discussion questions, which we'll get to. I'm going to pause at a couple of points during this talk just to give you a chance to talk with those around you about uh, the things that we are learning, mostly so that it's not just in one ear and out the other. So that's kind of the plan for today. We'll also take Q&A at the very end as well. So anything you'd like to ask about today's talk, feel free to store up for later. Um, well, if everyone's ready, what I'll do is I'll lead us in prayer and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's been written for us and for our salvation. So we pray this morning uh, as we turn to it that you might speak to us through it um, by your spirit, point us towards your son who is our saviour and Lord. Amen. Well, Christians often talk about having a relationship with God. Christians talk about having a relationship with God. Uh, But in many ways, that's a very vague term. Uh, What does that mean? What does that look like in practice? Uh, This morning, what I'd like to do is talk about what it means for Christians to have a relationship with God. And if you're not a believer and you're joining us today, then once again, welcome. We're delighted that you're here. It's the reason why, actually, we hold our church meetings in public, why Trinity has been planting churches all around Adelaide, because we want people to have a relationship with God. But if you're here today as someone who's a member of this church, then hopefully today is a good reminder. You might think of it perhaps as a checkup or a diagnostic of what it means for you to be in relationship with God. We're looking at Psalm 95, and as I said at the beginning, I'm really keen for us to do this because the Psalms are wonderful and yet at times a little bit bewildering for us. They were written a long time ago to a very different context. 
And if you look at the bottom left-hand side of your outline, you'll see that the way in which I think it's useful for us to read the Psalms is to first and foremost see what they tell us about what God is like uh, rather than what we are to do because actually, first and foremost, uh, they're a description of God's character and why he is worthy of our investigation. But if we start there, that also then gives us an opportunity to see how Jesus is the fullest revelation of what God is like before we then think about the implications for us. So we're going to do that today. We're going to think about what Psalm 95 says about what God is like. Uh, Second, how it points us to Jesus. And thirdly, what it asks of us today. Well, if you look then at uh, Psalm 95, um, there's two, uh, two things that it says that we do and one thing that it says we don't do as we have a relationship with God. And I'm going to work through each of those three things there at point one, what Psalm 95 says about God. Let's start with point one, sing for joy to the Lord. Let me read the first five verses for us again. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Okay, well, this is pretty straightforward. Uh, What do Christians do? What does it mean to have a relationship with God? Well, the first thing Psalm 95 says is that they sing for joy to the Lord. We sing for joy to the Lord. Uh, It's right there in verse 1. And in fact, it's repeated in verse 2, in the second half of verse 1, shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Uh, The repetition is meant to be emphatic, and actually verse 2 hammers that home. Let us come before him with thanksgiving, extol him with music and song. Christians sing for joy to the Lord. Now, of course, the language in verses 1 and 2 is so extravagant uh, that the big question is why? Why? What is it about the Lord that is worthy, uh, that calls for such celebrations? What is it about God that makes him worthy of this kind of adoration and adulation? Well, the answer comes in verses 3 through 5, and it's why, if you can see the outline, I've indented it slightly. Uh, Here's the reason, and um, I call this the wow factor. The wow factor. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the mountain peaks belong to him, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Why is it that Christians sing for joy to the Lord? Well, because he's the great God. He's the great king above all other gods. It's saying that God is supreme. He is resplendent in power. He is the maker and sustainer of everything. Now look at the language there in verses 4 and 5. Uh, the language there, it stretches from one end of this spectrum to the other. So he talks about from the depths of the earth to the mountain peaks. All of it belongs to him. It says that he made both the sea and the dry land. These are ways of describing the totality of God's creative power, which of course even includes us. God made even us. Can I say as an aside, I think that's just the most wonderful news for people in our city and our country and our world to hear. We have been made. We have been created. 
we have been fashioned by a supremely powerful being who has done so for a reason. And that means that all of us are endowed with purpose. You might say, we are more than just upgrades on previous versions. Our maker has made us for a reason. Now notice the imagery there in verses 4 and 5, which is particularly vivid, I think. It talks about his hands made it all, or the depths of the earth are in his hands. And when you read those words, I can't help but think of that famous and profound song. Uh, You know, the one that I'm thinking of here. He's got the whole world in his hands. Isn't that a magnificent image? Everything, God holds it in the palm of his hands. I was thinking about that this week. I wonder, how much can you hold in your hands? You know, I I thought actually of a child who'd been out trick-or-treating at Halloween, you know, hands full of candy, that kind of image. God holds everything in his hands. So why do we sing for joy? Why do we shout aloud? Why do we extol him with music and song? Because he is so majestic. And yet, if God were mighty but not good, if God were mighty but not good, you'd actually be nervous. Because mighty and not good would make him a tyrant or a despot. And that's, of course, the concern that the psalmist is going to address next in Psalm 95. Uh, There was a hint of it, actually, back in verse 1. He's described as the rock of our salvation. There is a sense in which God must be good to us in some way. That's why we're to come before him with thanksgiving in verse 2. So let's see the second thing that Christians do as part of a relationship with God. And it's point two there on your handout. We bow down in worship, verses 6 and 7. Let me read this part for us again. Verse 6, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Now, if you can see the the outline there, you'll notice again that I've laid it out in the same way as I have the first part of the song. Uh, The the first couple of lines give you uh, the description, the second part, verse 7, the reason. Let's start with what we do. Verse 6, come, let us bow down in worship, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Now the first part of the psalm, verses 1 through 5, reminded us that worship is meant to be a joyful celebration, a declaration of the wonder of our our majestic creator. Verse 6 kind of offers a counterbalance, a caution, a warning to not be too casual in the presence of this awesome and powerful God. Verse 6, let us bow down in worship, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Now, of all the actions that one can do, kneeling is a sign of homage. Kneeling is a sign of submission, of choosing to live and, if necessary, to die for your monarch's glory. It's the image, I think, of a knight. 
You know those olden day tales of knights who kneel before the king or the queen, pledging their allegiance, committing to live for their king or queen's honour or glory and not their own. And it's an image, of course, that is deeply biblical. It's the image that Jesus puts in our mind when he says that the way to pray is, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven. So yes, this is a God who is to be worshipped and praised and adored, but it's one before whom we lay our lives. And yet, if that sense for you makes you feel perhaps a little insecure or nervous, makes you feel maybe demeaned at having to kneel before another, immediately verse 7 will change the image. It will soften the language. Verse 7, for he is our God, we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. And here's the third image that comes from this psalm. It's a delightful image. It's the image of a shepherd caring for his sheep. What a lovely counterbalance to a great king above all gods. He is also described as a shepherd who cares for his sheep. This is meant to be comforting and reassuring, I think. It is the difference between a regent who is fiercely brandishing their royal scepter and a shepherd leaning on his crook. Because Psalm 95 is calling us not just to kneel in submission to our monarch, but to find shelter in the arms of the shepherd. To find respite and care and comfort and safety in the one who goes before us, who stands in front of us, like a shepherd who fights off the wolves and leads us to green pastures and fresh water. Here is a picture of safety and security in the arms of our God. Now, those are all very nice and good images I hear you say. So, assuming you're okay with being likened to a sheep, you know, like that's the implication, right? Assuming you're okay with that, what Psalm 95 is telling us is that our most basic identity as God's people Our most basic identity is God's people. It's not what we do. It's not whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or an engineer. Our most basic identity is not in terms of our human relationships as a parent, a child, a brother, a sister, an uncle, an auntie, a friend. Psalm 95 says our most basic identity as God's people is as the people of his pasture. What I think that means is then when you get asked, who are you? What do you do? Who's in your family? Psalm 95's lovely answer is, I'm a sheep. I'm a sheep because my shepherd takes care of me. Now, however the particular metaphor is meant to work in Psalm 95, the point I think is clear. God has so much power. He is the maker of all things. And yet, nevertheless, he chooses to use it for us. 
He is both our maker and our saviour and redeemer. Okay, what I'm going to do at this point is I'm going to pause for a moment and you'll see on screen behind me that there is a discussion question that I'd like you to spend just two minutes talking with those around you. Now, ideally, I'd like you to talk with people who you don't share a household with. That would be more useful of this time. So if you're happy just to turn around. But here's the question. Being in a relationship with God means both extolling him with music and song and kneeling before our maker in humble submission. So, here's the discussion. Which do you find easier or tend towards and why? And what would help you do so more willingly? Okay, understand what I'm asking you to do? Reflecting on what we've heard so far, two different pictures of what it means to call on our God to be in a relationship with him. What does that look like for you in practice? So, a couple of minutes, turn around, people around you, chat, and then I'll bring us back together. Over to you. Okay, thanks everyone. Thanks for being willing to do that and to introduce yourself to those around you if necessary. We'll come back one more time uh, towards the end of the talk just to get you to talk about a different question. Uh, But I'll get you just to uh, swing around in your seats and we'll keep going. Uh, We're trying to think about what Psalm 95 says about what God is like and so far we have seen um, what that means in terms of relationship with him. We've seen how therefore Christians sing for joy to the Lord and how they bow down in worship. Here's the third thing. And I've talked about things that Christians do and then things that Christians don't do. Here's the don't. Do not harden your hearts. Pick it up with me in verse 7, uh, in the last part of verse 7, and let me read from verse 7 through to 11 uh, to finish off Psalm 95. Today, if only you'd hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness... Where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they'd seen what I did. So for 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So here's the dilemma of Psalm 95, right? It's begun so triumphantly, so joyfully. Two great things that Christians do. They sing for joy to God. They uh, bow down in worship before the one who loves us. And it finishes with such an abrupt change of gear. So to ask the obvious question, why? Why, after all the upbeat positivity of verses 1 through 7, does it finish with such dire and somber warnings? Because it kind of feels like it comes out of the blue, doesn't it? Well... The answer, I think, is pretty blunt. The answer? Psalm 95 is telling us to learn from our ancestors' mistakes, not repeat them. Psalm 95 is telling us to learn from our ancestors' mistakes, not repeat them. And so that phrase that you see there in verses 8 through 11, do not harden your hearts, do not test him, What they're doing is recounting for us some of the darkest days in Israelite history. Hundreds of years before Psalm 95 is written, it's taking us back to the moment of Exodus 17. If you're taking notes, Exodus 17. Because back here in Exodus 17, just seconds after the Exodus, after that extraordinary event where God has intervened and rescued an entire nation from slavery 
I mean, that's never happened before. God's rescued an entire nation from slavery in Egypt, taken them out of, the prom- out of Egypt. He's parted the Red Sea for them. He's ushered them across. He's fed the manna and quail in the desert. What do they do? Well, they complain. God's people complain again at Meribah and Massa. They complain about the lack of water. And what Exodus 17 is doing, actually, it's, a, it's the start of 40 years of constant whinging and incessant grumbling about the timeline of God's plan to take them into the promised land. In fact, the way in which Psalm 95 finishes is reminding us about what happens next. None of the fighting men who were too afraid to challenge the inhabitants of the land, none of them would ever make it in. Only their children would. An entire generation falls in the desert. So that's the episode that Psalm 95 is referring us to. And of course, as I said, the question is why? Why, after such a good start, does it finish so negatively? Well, maybe you're thinking to yourself, do you know, if Psalm 95 had stopped at verse 7, it would be so good evangelistically. Wouldn't it be great? If you could just chop off the second half, that'd be a great song to show people who aren't Christian about why it's great to be a Christian. I'd understand why we might think that. Can I offer the counter-argument? I think that actually what Psalm 95 concludes with is a reminder that God holds us accountable for our failings. And I think that's good because in so doing, God demonstrates that he loves us. Why do I say that? I say that because I think the only thing more discouraging than God judging us is God not caring about us. That would be divine apathy. That would mean that actually we don't mean anything to him, that he's given up on us. I think ultimately that hurts far more. Nevertheless, maybe you're thinking that God's punishment for hardening our hearts is just a little bit too harsh and unfair. After all, they complain at Meribah and Massa about the lack of water and an entire generation of adults dies in the desert. That feels a bit over the top. Well, again, fair concern, although let me point out that in, in some ways, all God does is give that generation exactly what they want. You see, they were too afraid to enter into the promised land, somewhat ironic, of course, given that God has just rescued them from slavery in Egypt. They're too afraid to enter in, so God gives them what they want. Over the next 40 years, that entire generation of adults die in the desert they never enter God's rest. So what Psalm 95 is doing, I think, is reminding us that God doesn't always spare us the consequences of our actions. God doesn't always spare us the consequences of our actions. Uh, You might say, we'll never know the boundaries if we don't know that we've crossed them. And yet, what's amazing about Psalm 95 is that the rock of our salvation still does show undeserved grace and mercy. 
You might be wondering how I could say that. Look at verse 10 with me, one last time. Verse 10, for 40 years I was angry with that generation. So here's the amazing thing. That generation dies in the desert, but their children still enter the promised land. God's righteous accounting is for that generation, not for all generations. Because he's a God who leans towards grace and mercy. And to kind of conclude this part, I just draw your attention to Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. I printed it there for you on your handout. It's a reminder of uh, God's extraordinary grace and mercy. Exodus 24, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here is a picture of God's extraordinary mercy shown even when we don't deserve it. Well, Psalm 95, what it tells us what God is like. Let me move more quickly then through point two, how Psalm 95 points us to Jesus. How does Psalm 95 point us to Jesus? Uh, Because Jesus is the fullest revelation of what God is like. Well, as you've been hearing Psalm 95, no doubt different things have popped to mind. Uh, For example, uh, Jesus is the one who does not succumb to temptation in the desert. Uh, In Matthew chapter 4, when Satan tempts him, he, unlike this first generation of Israelites, he doesn't give in. But in many ways, as, uh, as I've reflected and dwelt in Psalm 95, it seems to me that the most obvious way in which Psalm 95 points us to Jesus is to remind us how Jesus is the good shepherd. Remember that image of us being the flock under his care? Jesus is the good shepherd and his people know his voice and they listen to him. John chapter 10, verse 14, on your handout. I'm the good shepherd, Jesus says, I know my sheep, my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there'll be one flock and one shepherd. Well, let me try and wrap it all up then. Point three, what does Psalm 95 ask of us today? One of the things that Psalm 95 tells us is that it's so easy to harden our hearts. It's so easy to harden our hearts. That's one of the reasons why I think the Psalms are songs that are meant to be sung together, not just on our own. The Psalms are songs that are meant to be sung together, not just on our own, not just individually. Psalms are meant to be sung, they're meant to be said by all believers when we gather as a reminder lest any one of us forget. Because actually our individual circumstances can lead any one of us astray. It's so easy to harden our hearts and so that's why Psalm 95 warns us that it's something to be addressed, verse 7 today. 
Do not harden your hearts today. This is not a question to be deferred until tomorrow because even if today you are doing very well, each new day brings new threats that might attack you or new temptations that might distract you. So, at this point, I'm going to pause and I'm going to ask you to talk about the next discussion question. Again, it's on the screen. In your relationship with God, there are threats which attack you and temptations which distract you. Which are you more susceptible to and why? Okay, two minutes, just in the groups around you. Talk about that and then I'll gather us back together at the end. Okay, thanks very much. I'll just get you to turn back around and I'll wrap up for us and then pray. Uh, It is sadly so easy to harden our hearts. That's why Psalm 95 is a song that's meant to be sung by us collectively to remind each other. It is so easy to harden our hearts. That's why Psalm 95 says it's a warning to be addressed today, not left till tomorrow. It is so easy to harden our hearts, and that means, I think, then, that the big question for us is, why would we ever do so? Especially given everything that we've learned about what God is like in Psalm 95. Uh, Verses 1 through 5 says, to be honest, resistance to God is futile. He's the maker of everything. And everything he's done for us in verses 6 and 7 says, why would you ever turn away from someone as good as the good shepherd? So why? Why do we succumb? Well, here's my theory. My theory is that the reason why we harden our hearts is because when he doesn't exercise his care for us in exactly the way in which he thinks he should, when things don't turn out exactly as we want them to, we start to think, but I'd know better than God. Sadly, I think most Christians don't get what a relationship with God is like. I think most Christians think that being a Christian means you get to ask God for all the things that you want. We think that because, sadly, Christians have mismemorized some of the great passages of Scripture. Take, for example, Romans 8. Most Christians think that Romans 8 says, God works in all good things for for the good of those who love him. It doesn't. It says God works in all things, whether very, very good or appallingly bad, for those who love him. Now, don't mishear me. It's quite okay to ask questions of God, to ask why things have turned out in ways in which you wish they had not. You'll see that time and time again throughout the Psalms. You'll hear that from the lips of Jesus on the cross, if at no other place. Why have you forsaken me? And yet what matters, I think, is why you're asking. And if I can put it this way, what matters is your tone of voice. Is the question one out of anger or defiance? Or is it out of a genuine desire to know him better? 
for him to show you how his way is better, how his will being done on earth as in heaven is better. Is the question, a confession, that none of us ever fully see the full picture. But nevertheless, we know that the good shepherd has laid down his life for us. That's how much he cares for us. In the end, a relationship with God, being a Christian means asking God to give us what he wants. Recognising that he always knows best. And so what Psalm 95 is doing, I think, is calling us towards an orientation and a tendency towards thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for all that we do have. Not discontentment or bitterness for the things which we do not. It is so easy to harden our hearts. And yet, the best antidote... Uh, the best vaccine to what I am coining coronary calcification, the best vaccine to hardening your heart, Jesus' words in John chapter 10, my sheep know my voice. My sheep know my voice. Uh, Ultimately, I think for a Christian, a relationship with God means listening to him call you even if you don't know where you're going or the state of the road ahead of you. Here's where I'll finish. Imagine if you were that you were trapped in a dark tunnel. Now, I apologise if you're claustrophobic. This is a bad illustration to use, but just go with me. Imagine you're trapped in a dark tunnel. Psalm 95 says, Jesus is calling, come towards me. Just follow my voice. And amidst all the other noise out there, this is what we hold on to. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it points us towards your Son. Help us, we pray, in this week ahead to hear his voice and to know that in him alone is their life. Amen.